It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. Our guest this week is Ellen Zakos. She's the author of eight books, including Backyard Foraging, The Wildcrafted Cocktail, and her newest book, The Forager's Pantry. Ellen has taught foraging mixology workshops, which sounds sexy as hell, uh, <laughs> for the botanist gin and horticulture classes for the New York Botanic Garden. She's been a board member of GardenCom, which is formerly Garden Writers Association, and offers online courses on craft cocktails and wild spices. And to boot, she lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Thanks so much for joining me, Ellen. Oh, thank you for having me, Christy. And you know what? That's the best job I ever had in my life. Being flown around the country to teach bartenders, getting to sample, learning from them as much as I taught them, and, and then being sent to Scotland <gasps> to visit the distillery for the botanist gin and meet with the foragers there who, you know, are, are harvesting the wild things that they're putting into the gin. I mean, to be paid to do that, I felt like I was... I died and gone to heaven. Let's just say that. It was that a great sounds, job. That sounds pretty spectacular. Yes, I, it was. I was. I've been to one distillery in Scotland. It was Glen Livet. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and that was a pretty, that was, I'm not a, I'm not a hard liquor drinker myself, but I, their 21 year was pretty spectacular. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm a big fan. So. <laughs> All right. Well, we're off to a great start. <laughs> uh, now you used to live in New York and now you live in New Mexico. Yeah. So what's it like shifting from one hardiness zone to another like that? Are you going to believe me when I tell you I'm in the same hardiness zone? Um, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Uh, everybody, when I said I was moving to New Mexico, they're like, oh, so you want to get away from the winter? And I said, no, Santa Fe is at 7,000 feet. Ah, yeah. It was, it, I mean, t- it was 27 degrees when I woke up here this morning. We had oh. snow last week. Oh. Um, and now I, in the Southern part of New Mexico, that's I think gets down to definitely zone eight. Maybe there's even parts of it that are zone nine, but Santa Fe is a solid zone six. And that's what I was in, in New York before they changed it. And a lot of New York gardens, especially the ones that I was working in were on rooftops. And when you're working in a rooftop garden, you really have to plant for a colder zone. So Mm -hmm. even when they moved New York to zone seven, I still planted for zone six because containers offer so little insulation around the root balls of your plants. Plus you've got the increased exposure to cold temperatures and wind up there. Zone six all the way. That's my life in the garden. Okay. And so are you cultivating anything, a garden right now? I am, but I'll tell you my garden is so small. I I have not even (laughs) measured the square feet. We have, I love, I love our house, but it's really close to downtown. And we did that on purpose because we wanted to be able to walk to the grocery store to walk to the post office. And that's wonderful, but it also means we're on a tiny lot. And that's perfect because I spent so many years designing, installing, and maintaining large gardens for clients I want my garden to be small so that it can be perfect with as little work as possible. Mm. I do not need to work in the garden anymore. I just want to do the bare minimum because <laughs> I've spent my life working for other people in the garden. I hear so, you. So yes, I, I have a cultivated <clears throat> garden and everything in it is edible. 
But the uneducated eye would not necessarily know that. They would just think, oh, that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty garden. Yeah, there's roses and there's a crab apple and there's some, uh, there's a spruce tree there. And okay, there's some poppies. They wouldn't necessarily stop and think, oh, you know what? The fruit of that mahonia is edible. Those milkweed flowers are edible. Those daylily flowers are edible. So I know that my cultivated garden is someplace I can forage. But a passerby would probably just think, oh, that's, that's a nice garden. I hope they'd think that anyway. <laughs> I love it. And you've, you've cracked open the topic of today's discussion, which is foraging. For mm. the most part, we're, we're going to talk about eating those things too. So, yeah. But do you forage where you live? Because you're in downtown. I am. But, you know, I think most, most people think you have to, like, go off into the wild, into the mountains and the fields to forage. And that is simply not true. I, I swear some of the best foraging I ever did in my life was in Central Park. Now, if I'd been caught, I might have been given a ticket or I might have been asked to stop. But that's not what we're discussing here. We're discussing <laughs> the existence of these wild edible plants. And so many of the things that I recommend, especially for beginning foragers, are invasive weeds that are also edible. These are things you can forage in many places, urban places, parks, fields, parking lots. Okay, I take that last part back. <laughs> Not parking, so much lots, parking lots, no, because and I know we're going to talk about safety and, and, and we'll get back to why you shouldn't forge in a parking lot when we talk about safety. But the fact is that a lot of these, a lot of these wonderful edible plants are weeds and you can find them almost anywhere. So the things I forage for here in Santa Fe are, are very different, mostly from the things I used to forage for in New York City. But um, but there are some things that are the same, and, and then there are some things that are not, because, of course, we get, you know, 10 inches of rain a year, a year, and 45 back in New York City. So there's a big difference in the amount of moisture, even though the growing zone is the same. So what are some of your favorite things to forage where you live? I would say... Some of my favorite things to, God, you know, it's like asking a mother to choose her favorite child, Christy. Yeah. Who's your favorite child? <laughs> I no, don't have kidding. kids. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Neither do I. So there we right? go. We get out of that question pretty easily. <laughs> yeah. Like, we opted um, out. Anyway. <laughs> You know, I love, I, gosh, it's so hard to choose. I love acorns. I love acorns because they are so versatile. You can do sweet, you can do savory, you can do baked goods, you can do soups. Um, you can even do um, syrups to use in cocktails with acorns. You can do any, almost anything with acorns. But um, we're coming up on green season here. The, they're just starting to come up. And that's always exciting because you go all winter without anything that you can forage that's fresh. I mean, if, if you live someplace where there's snow, which I do. So I get very excited when I see curly dock coming up or mustard greens or chickweed, something like that. Stinging nettles, that'll be, a, you know, in another month or so. I, I just get so excited when I see those things because they're all so delicious and, and so ephemeral. You know, you have to get them while you can. Right. Well, we actually here in Los Angeles, we have stinging nettles coming up everywhere. So I've been telling everyone, make soup, make soup now. 
Yeah. Different mustard greens. Spring is a great season for all sorts of mustards. You might get um, musk mustard, which is relatively mild. You might get um, wild rocket. You know, the common names vary from place to place, as do the mustard species. But all mustards are edible, and the difference is in the sharpness and intensity of their flavor. So if you can identify the plant as a mustard, take a nibble from the leaf, and if you spit it out and say, oh, my God, I couldn't possibly eat that... (laughs) then don't pick it. But many of them are are wonderful additions to salads, to cooked greens dishes. And if you infuse them in gin or vodka, they make an excellent cocktail base for like a savory cocktail, like a Bloody Mary or a Salty Dog or a Martini. Nice. I I so don't know any of those drinks, but... (laughs) (laughs) You said you're not a a hard liquor person. I'm not. I'm 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 here to educate. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you can do something with Moscato, let me know. <laughs> okay. I'll have to think about that. I one. know I'm such a, I'm such a, like, I just don't drink. And when I do, it's, it's gotta be sweet. So there's okay. that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we're learning too much about me and not enough about you. <laughs> <laughs> so my next question, now I got a review copy of your book, the mm-hmm. foragers pantry. And I was was really happy to see that your recipes use at least a few things that actually grow in my neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. You've got flour soda using milkweed flowers, lots of recipes with foraged greens, including a riff on Spanakopita that mm-hmm. I love, stinging nettles, plus a selection of nuts, which you mentioned acorns already, um, including like recipes using black walnuts, which is something I have a tree very nearby me with black walnuts. You've also talked about tubers like Day lily bulbs, and of course, uh, there's a whole chapter on mushrooms. But before we get to that, because this is, mm-hmm. we can talk all day about it, I think I would love to know how you got started foraging and cooking with wild foods. You know, I, I've told this story so many times. I wish I could make it more interesting. It's it's really <laughs> rather pedestrian. But when I lived in New York City, I designed, installed, and maintained rooftop gardens and back, brownstone backyard gardens. And one of the women who worked for me was a friend from the New York Botanic Garden, and she was a forager. And one morning, I had not had anything in the refrigerator, so I literally put two pieces of American cheese and some mayonnaise between two slices of bread. And that was it. It was that or nothing. And we were on our lunch break and she reached over and she picked a couple of leaves of garlic mustard off and said, put these in your sandwich. It's going to make it better. And not only was she right, but she really blew my mind because this was free food, amazing flavor. It was all around me. I knew it as a weed, but had no idea it was edible. And it just opened my eyes to all these possibilities. And these have become what I like to call unbuyable flavors. If you paid a million dollars, you couldn't get it at Trader Joe's or Whole Foods or any other grocery store. You've got to get out there for yourself and and harvest it. And that makes it, I mean, it's already delicious, but when you put that time into it and you gather it for yourself, it makes it even more delicious to me. That's a wonderful perspective on things. Uh, I've had one other forager on this show and, and she did not give me that answer. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I love your, I love your answer and your perspective on things. That's really cool. She grew up walking around barefoot in the woods and, and sounds like yours was this, this more urban experience. So much. Yeah. No matter where you come from, 
you can forage. And I have to say, I confess, and I've said this before, I think on one other podcast, embarrassingly, I joined the Mycological Society for two years. I paid my dues. I never went to a single meeting nor a foray. And I've been like, I want to forage, but I just, you know, it's just not in like in my brain, but you're, you're not, you're not you. dead yet, Christy. You can I know. still do it. <laughs> yes. still, you can still do that. Right. And, and you're here to inspire me. And that's why yeah. I, that's one of the reasons why I, uh, and your book is so inspiring. It's really beautifully photographed and the, the instructions and recipes are really beautiful. Before we get to a little bit more in depth about the book, I want to talk about safety. Do you Mm -hmm. have any guidelines for staying alive while eating (laughs) foraged foods? Yes, I want everybody to stay alive so they can continue (laughs) to forage because this is something that can be a passion and an occupation for a lifetime. So yeah, first of all, if you never put anything in your mouth, if you're not 100% sure what it is, and I like to say, that's a good motto for life in general, not just for foraging, but it's especially important for foraging. If you think you know what it is and you're not 100% sure, just walk away or take a piece, take it home, go through your guidebooks, make sure of your identification before you eat it because there are some mistakes that cannot be undone and you don't want to be one of those mistakes. The second thing to think about is where you're foraging from. I said before, you you probably don't want to forage from a parking lot and you also don't want to forage from near a a busy road because there are particulates, heavy metal particulates that are contained in exhaust that can settle out of car and truck exhaust and be absorbed by plants that are growing nearby. So if if it's a country road, if it's a dirt road where maybe one car passes by every five or 10 minutes, you probably can harvest near there. If it's a busy interstate, I wouldn't harvest closer than 50 to 100 feet. Just wouldn't do it because it's not clean. Mm -hmm. And that also extends to places where you're not sure how they treat the landscape. If, If there's any possibility that herbicides or insecticides are used in that area, don't harvest from it because those are not things you want to put in your body. And a lot of parks will post signs when they spray. In Central Park, they always did. They said what they sprayed, where they sprayed it, and you know what the life expectancy of the herbicide or insecticide was. And that was a good thing to know. So, oh, and the third one, she said, um, <laughs> if you have food allergies, think about them. People know that they're allergic to certain common foods but they might not know they're allergic to foraged foods. So if you know you're allergic to cashews and somebody says, oh, try this sumac that I just harvested, it would be helpful to know that sumac and cashew are in the same family, Anacardiaceae, and you might have a reaction to it. So try any new food, foraged or not foraged, in a small amount first, so that if you do have a reaction to it, it's very manageable. That's smart. Those are my those are my three main safety tips. Yeah, and I'm thinking and have an EpiPen close in hand if you yeah. do have allergies. It's always good to do. I wonder because you've also written a book called Backyard Foraging. Mm-hmm. Is that a gu- more of a guidebook on what you can forage? Yeah, backyard foraging is my sneaky way of getting people who are gardeners to start thinking about the edible aspects of some of their favorite ornamental plants. So 
a lot of the plants in backyard foraging are cultivated plants. There are also some very familiar weeds. And the idea is to get you started in your own backyard where the fear factor is really eliminated because A, you already know what you're growing there and B, you know what you've sprayed on it. So Mm -hmm. things like hostas, daylilies, dahlia tubers, lilac flowers, things that anybody would have in their garden to look at, not necessarily to eat, I explore their edible characteristics in that book. So if you're interested in foraging and not sure how to get started, it's a really gentle way of of introducing yourself to the idea of foraging and to some of those wonderful flavors. Nice. And do you have any favorite guidebooks that you keep on your shelf? Yes, I do. Um, Sam Thayer, in my opinion, is the number one forager in the country. And I don't mean he's the most popular or the best ranked. I mean, he is the absolute best forager in the country. I teach with him every year. He is a lovely human being, but he is so experienced, has so much information, and is such a good writer. I mean, he makes you laugh out loud. And if you can do that from the page, writing about wild edibles, I think that's uh, incredibly valuable. So he's written three books, and these are books that are all about, they don't have many recipes in them at all. That's not his forte. But he gives very, very detailed descriptions about the plants themselves, the seasonality, where you can find them, the type of habitat. Any serious forager is going to want to have all three of his books, starting with Nature's Garden, uh, sorry, starting with The Forager's Harvest and The Nature's Garden, and then 36, I think it's 36 Incredible Wild Edibles That Will Change Your Life or something like that. But (laughs) Sam Thayer, just look him up, buy all his books. They're wonderful. Those are, I will post links to those on the blog post that goes along with this podcast so people can look those up. All right. I'd like to dive into some of these recipes now because you offer instruction on how to prepare and process a lot of wild foods. What are some of the easiest to work with? Well, I think I, I would, if you're just starting to dabble, I think one of the easiest things to start with are spices and herbs. And that's why that's the first chapter in the book, because a lot of these wild spices and herbs can be substituted for traditional spices and herbs. So it's a very easy way to think about these wild flavors and to use some of your own favorite recipes and just incorporate a few wild flavors into them. So for example, if you if you love to cook with oregano, you might think about cooking with bee balm instead. Either, you know, an ornamental bee balm that you you grow in your garden or something that grows wild. Both the flowers and the leaves have a very strong oregano flavor. And that's something that you can do with almost no effort And you'll have this aha moment, like, why do I even need to grow oregano? I don't, because bee balm is so beautiful, and it tastes almost the same. And it's great for pollinators, so... It's great for pollinators, yeah. Yeah. What a great idea. I think think starting with spices and herbs is a really uh, good way to go. It's a really easy way to go. And, you know, most of us can grow bee balm. Most of us have some kind of wild garlic or field garlic. You hear about how ramps are over-harvested, and they are. But the fact is, there are a lot of wild garlic species that are considered lawn weeds or considered invasive pest plants. And they're almost, I mean, I think some of them are just as tasty as ramps, frankly. So there's no reason why you can't explore those flavors very close to home and do some really easy substituting. 
So we have this thing called false garlic that is rampant, especially in my community garden and very difficult to get rid of. Is that considered a wild garlic or a field garlic or is that something entirely different? I have no idea because okay. I don't know what the, because what's the, do you know what the botanical name is? I'm going to look it up. Hang on one yep. sec. Yep. Okay. So false garlic is technically, okay. Uh, me and my Latin, nothroscordum bivalve. It's an okay. amaryllis. It's an, in the amaryllis family, right? So yeah, that is not a garlic. That is not a true garlic or a, a true, um, onion and I don't know that it's edible. Does okay. it have a garlicky smell or it, to it when you break the leaves? It does, but it's mostly just really annoying. I'm going to say that's an indication <laughs> that you might not want to. Well, we've digressed. Okay. okay. So now, uh, uh, on the other hand, are there any foraged foods that are a little more difficult to work with, but are really worth the extra time? Yeah. And, and, you know, I mentioned acorns before, and I'm going to say Acorns, right? Acorns. <laughs> you have to leach them, right? You have to leach them, but it is so worth it. And I was so nervous about it the first time I did it, but I felt like I wasn't a true forager until I had worked with acorns. And, and the fact is that it takes some time to leach the acorns, but it's not hard. It's yeah. just, it's not hard. You just have to work at it either to hot leach in, in changes of boiling water or you cold leach and it takes you know, you change the water every day for a period of maybe up to two weeks to get those bitter tannins out. And then once you've done that, depending on how you grind the nuts, whether it's into a fine flour or something that's more like a rough polenta, or you might even keep the nuts in big chunks and use them as nuts. There's just so many different things you can do with acorns. It's, it's really worth experimenting with. That's uh, interesting. I, I've always wondered about how long it takes when not, because the, the person I had on this podcast before, she said she would just put them in a mesh bag and dangle them in a stream for a couple of days. And the, the rushing water would actually leach out much faster, but in still, mm -hmm. in still water, it sounds like it takes a bit longer. Yes, it does. And um, <clears throat> since I have never had a rushing stream <laughs> right, so in lucky. my backyard, I but you know what you can do? And I, I put this, I have a photograph of this in my presentations and I always love to see people's expressions when they realize what they're looking at. I put my shelled acorns in a net mesh bag and instead of putting that in a stream, I put it in the tank of my toilet. Oh my God, right, because it's gonna recycle. Exactly. Ah, what a great and, idea. And, and you know, I empty the tank first, I scrub down the wall so there's no algae buildup, but this is not the toilet bowl water. This no, is no. perfectly clean yeah. toilet tank water. And every time you flush, fresh water runs through the nuts. And depending on how many people are using that toilet, it could take anywhere from, I say, two to five days, depending on how many tannins, you know, different acorns have different bitterness levels. But it's a really good way, a really low effort way. Oh my to... God, that is. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You use what you've got, Christy. I don't oh. have a stream. I have a toilet. That's fantastic. And pretty much everyone in Western society does. So that yeah. is, I love the idea. I'm going to definitely look into doing that. It's <laughs> okay. fantastic. All right. Well, it is tip time. You've already mm -hmm. shared a number of very, very cool tips, but do you have a favorite tip you'd like to share with the garden nerd audience? I do. Yes. And that is don't throw anything away. Now, of course, I don't really mean that. There are some things that are not worth working <laughs> with, but 
there are often things that you can use two or three different ways. So for example, where I live, apricots are a very common street tree. They're all over the place and they drop so much fruit that during apricot season, people will put signs out under their tree saying, please take the fruit, take the apricots. (laughs) And I am happy to oblige. And one of my favorite beverages is apricot infused bourbon. It is so delicious. It's just wonderful. After you strain the the apricots out and you, you serve your bourbon in a glass, you've got all this fruit and it's got bourbon flavor in it. And you can do so many things with it. I make apricot bourbon chutney, apricot bourbon barbecue sauce, all kinds of things. But wait, there's more. <laughs> the pits of apricots can be split open and the kernels inside are what is actually used to make almond extract. Mm -hmm. So you can split open those kernels. I'm not saying it's easy. It's a lot of work and I do it in small batches, but I make my own almond extract from them. And I can turn that into a liqueur that has a wonderful flavor, sort of like amaretto. So just because you've done one thing before you throw away the leftovers, think about all the other things that you can do with it and, and really make the most that you absolutely can out of every harvest. That's a great tip. And so you mentioned in the recipes, there is at least one recipe with apricot pits, isn't there? Yeah, I do actually give a recipe for um, making the almond extract, how to do it, how to do it safely, because as you know, there's some kind of cyanide compound in the in the almond kernels. So you, you just give them a quick roast. It's not heat stable. So 10 minutes in the oven and, and they're completely safe. So it's a very simple recipe. You could hardly even call it a recipe, but yes, it's there. And then I talk about how you can turn that into the liqueur by adding a little bit of simple syrup to it. I think you've inspired a whole bunch of uh, pandemic drinking just now. Good, Good. I hope so. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing that expert tip, Ellen, and for being a guest on the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Sure. Now, how do people find you? Uh, They can go to my website, which is www.backyardforager.com. And I am also on both Facebook and Instagram as The Backyard Forager. And if you go to my website and you're interested in this subject, I have a monthly newsletter, which you can sign up for very easily. You'll see where to do that. And uh, it's it's a very low-key newsletter. I'm not trying to sell anything. And it's uh, once a month. So I'm not going to invade your email box. Awesome. All right, Garden Nerds, you'll find links to Ellen's books on GardenNerd.com this week. We'll also post links to her social media feeds and her cool online courses, everyone. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at GardenNerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under GardenNerd1, on Facebook as GardenNerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening! <laughs>